Hi, this is John Knights, author of Leading Beyond the Ego, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is John Knights. John is a co-founder and chairman of Leadership, and he's an experienced coach, mentor, and facilitator of senior executives, teams, and peer groups. Earlier in his career, he had attained the position of corporate VP of a Fortune 100 company and the main board director of one of the largest companies in the UK. As an entrepreneur, he started up a number of companies, including several in environmental technology prior to leadership. John lives in the greater Oxford area and is here to talk about his book, Leading Beyond the Ego, How to Become a Transpersonal Leader. Welcome, John. Hi, welcome. Good to be here. Thank you. John, tell me, when you were growing up, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? When I was growing up, now that's a good one, I think the, my teacher at the sailing club, I think he would be the one who would have influenced me probably most. What was his name and what did you learn from him? His name was Mr. Green and he was our woodwork teacher. And he gave me the opportunity with a couple of other students to build a small sailing boat that, so we could represent the school in the local regatta. And I think it was that opportunity that you could build something yourself and then you could actually sail it and hope to win. In fact, we never won the, the race. But the fact that you had the chance to sail the boat that you'd built. I think that was really inspiring for me. There's something about actually sitting in a boat that you created and having it be seaworthy <laughs> and be able to compete that just fills you with pride and confidence, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. What do you think was unique about Mr. Green's approach? Was it that he was very encouraging? Did he see something that led him to give you an opportunity to take some sort of particular role in building that boat? I think he asked for volunteers and and I volunteered I can't really remember why I volunteered to be quite honest but I wasn't a, I wasn't a particularly handy person I wasn't the best in the woodwork class I tended to be a bit more cerebral at that time I was more interested in in board games and mathematics and things like that so the opportunity to to do something different and to actually prove myself that I could do something that I wasn't too confident about and he just gave encouragement. So I think it was giving that encouragement was probably one of the most important things. To some degree, I imagine you being a little bit surprised that you were actually picked <laughs> at that point as well. Yeah, I guess he must have, he probably must have seen something in me. I don't know. But yeah, I, I never really thought too much about that. I just thought, oh, wow, I'm lucky. All of us have those types of experiences, at least one, probably many. As you think about early in your career, can you think of a time when you drew upon that confidence that you got from Mr. Green's encouragement early in your career and used it to make a decision or take an action that was influenced by his example? I think in general, it, that experience gave me self-confidence. And so I was a person who, when I went to university, I was confident enough to be myself rather than trying to please others. Other people, which I think helped. And when I started my career, I also had that self-confidence. For example, after a year after I graduated, I decided to move to Sweden and I didn't have a job to go to. I think I had 50 pounds and a suitcase full of clothes and, and my little car. And I went to Sweden and somehow more by serendipity and luck and so on and so forth, I managed to find myself a really good job that I really enjoyed and worked there for five years. What was that job? It was with a company called Alpha Le 
Laval, which was one of the biggest companies in in the in in Sweden. I got my the job I got to start with was a research engineer. I was put on a research project. That the, the outcome of which was that it wouldn't work. So I, I thought I was doing myself out of a job. But the reality was that I guess they must have been impressed that I was willing to say that something wouldn't work. So I was offered a full time job at that point in time. I had a, a very interesting boss who was very good technically, but he was also realised that I was quite on my own as an individual in a foreign country and helped me and spent time with me both outside and side work. So he taught me to ski amongst other things. But one of the things that he did say about me was he, he referred to me as the artistic engineer. So it was a gentle suggestion that maybe engineering wasn't the way where I should spend the rest of my career. And that actually gave me the in, incentive to move into sales. Wow, that's a big transition. Yeah. How did you do in sales? I did very well. I was technical sales. I knew enough of, I knew enough of the technical side that I was able to talk about the product to the clients in terms of the benefits and features and so on and so forth. But it was quite obvious that I was something that I was relatively good at, which I didn't know until I started doing it, was that I could interpret people's meanings and I could communicate well with people, even people who didn't have English as their first language and listening to people. So I had a natural ability to be empathetic in that kind of situation. Interestingly enough, I wasn't necessarily empathetic in my private life. So that was something that I had to learn, the difference and how one helped the other. I think we can all relate to that side of the self-awareness. We're able to exhibit some sort of behavior or characteristic trait in one of our roles as a student, as an employee, as a salesperson, and then it doesn't necessarily carry over into other roles either on a sports team or at home. Absolutely. Self-awareness is just so important. The sales skills, I also imagine, helped influence your decision to become an entrepreneur. Many people listen to this podcast, have that experience of working in a corporate job and then saying, I want to start a business. You were able to do that. What do you think allowed you to be successful in making that transition? First of all, it wasn't an easy decision. I didn't make that decision consciously to become an entrepreneur. The reason I became an entrepreneur, to be quite honest, was because I got got very high up in an organization where I was offered the role to become chief executive, it would have compromised my values to accept that job because there were certain aspects that the, 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 the merchant bank and the auditors were requesting that had been, it wasn't illegal, but it was just maneuvering things around that I just wasn't comfortable with. And I thought, if this is what big corporate is, leading a big corporation is about, I don't want any part of it. So I left for that reason. And then I picked myself up and and said, okay, what am I going to do now? And the first couple of things that I tried weren't successful. So it was lear learning by failure, to be quite honest, to start with. It was only the third or fourth investment or company that I got into that was a success. First of all, I think that's a remarkable thing that you understood that you wouldn't be comfortable before you took the job. So many people would have been seduced by being able to have CEO on their resume and have the, a year or two to try it out. You realized in advance that based on what they were asking and how they were describing the roles, it was not going to be a good fit and you didn't want that experience. But it was all subconscious. I didn't, it's only several years later that it became conscious of why I did it. And that's one of the things why I got into leadership development of executives is that so much of what I did, if whether I did it right or I did it wrong, it was subconscious. I didn't have that self-awareness. And I think if you can develop that self-awareness at an earlier age proactively, then you can accelerate and mature your leadership much more quickly. I think that's a huge, important point 
point to make. What do you notice now about what it takes to be an effective leader for a corporation or a small business with dozens of managers reporting to you? It's not that different, even a large business, bigger numbers, more zeros perhaps. But really, what does it take to be an effective leader? I think it was the same thing, whatever the generation or whatever the century. That is that people had to think beyond their own self-interest. They have to think about the interest of the people that are working for them and the other stakeholders, even the suppliers and the community, etc., etc. But it's about thinking about other people. And that's why we call the book Leading Beyond the Ego, because if you have your ego at the center of what you're doing, then you're just doing it for your own self-interest. And that isn't and actually, if you think of it ethically, you're actually being paid by the organization to do the best for the organization in a sustainable and long-term way. And the only way you can do that is by how you engage with the, the people around you. Who's an example, either a public figure or a private figure, who you look to as an exemplar of being an effective leader today? There are quite a few people that I've come across that I think are really good leaders and exemplars are the right kind of lead, leader for the future. I personally, I don't know any famous people personally. And so I could, one can point at all the big names the from Microsoft and Google. Google and Apple and so on and so forth. And I'm sure that most of those leaders have some transpersonal traits. But as we are human beings, we've also got, all of us have got negatives. Becoming a transpersonal leader is an ongoing, lifelong journey. What I prefer to do, if possible, is to talk about specific traits that people have rather than look at leaders that have reached it. Because I'm a little bit of an anti-hero type of guy. I don't think it's good that leaders become heroes. But I'd like to look at the transpersonal aspects of each individual. So let's establish a couple of things. First of all, a transpersonal leader is one that is able to lead beyond the ego. Can you name an individual that embodies at least one of these traits? One person in particular I can think of is called Gregor. He was the chief operating officer or is the chief operating officer of a major European bank. One of the things that he really wanted to do was to change the whole culture of the organization from being a typical bank to being one where people felt fulfilled, they enjoyed their work, and therefore they were more productive. The one thing he realized he had to do to make that happen was to let go, was to not be the one that made all the decisions, that actually encouraged other people to be involved in the decision making and, and help the decision making to be where the expertise was in the organization. He also is very good at making sure that those individuals get the credit when things go right. And he takes the responsibility when things go wrong. So that is a really good example of somebody working beyond their ego. One of the definitions that I got from the book that I thought was very interesting is that you talk about how companies understand what their idea of a leader is and how we favor traditionally and in general leadership characteristics of self-confidence, assertiveness, influence, and achievement. You go on to say, which without the good values to temper them may regress to high ego, aggression, manipulation, and ruthlessness, and obsession for total control. Now, I don't think we'd have much trouble finding exemplars 
of the latter group where it yeah. goes wrong, where people don't have that ballast yeah. to temper it and to look beyond it. From your experience and from your study of understanding how to help people get beyond their own self-interest and organizing all of their work time, wealth, and influence around that, what helps somebody get beyond that? Well, I think the first thing that we really have to do that is to understand what are our core values? What are we here for? What do we believe in? I think if you start to ground yourself in those things, who, who you are as a human being, I think it's much more easy to overcome those innate and default urges to take those things such as assertiveness to excess. Now, I can imagine people listening to this and saying one of two things, either, oh, of course, as soon as you have people make explicit what their values are, they may write down, I, I want to amass as much wealth as possible. And then they say, well, is there anything else? That process alone helps them unravel and reshuffle the values because values are something that we learn and embrace and codify. It's not something we're born with necessarily. There are different parental, family, community, and social influences. However, there's another group that says, my gosh, what if you did get somebody who just said, I want to be right, I want to be in control, and I want all the money and the credit. Those are my values. Have you had people near either of those two extremes? And then how do you have that next step of the conversation? Yeah, that's a very good one. I've coached a couple of people like that. That's all they wanted in life. And I've walked away from that coaching assignment basically but it's only it's, but it's a very but it's a very small number that that really want that and can't be moved away from it and they tend to be a bit sociopathic to be quite honest haven't you encountered people who at first glance that's what they were told or that's what their mentor yes. taught them and then they were able to say i'm doing this i'm working hard i'm achieving this but i haven't the foggiest idea what to do when i get there absolutely we are being measured by how much we earn or how much we own i think we have to really change from that Yes, everybody wants to have enough money so they can be comfortable. But whether you've got one couple of nice cars is fine. But do people need 10 or 20 or more than one luxury yacht or whatever it is? We probably both read the research that shows that after a certain level of income that makes you upper middle class, where you have a stable home, you have cars for the adults in the family, and maybe you go on regular vacations and you're enjoying that lifestyle, that doubling the income doesn't double one's happiness. It only leads to incremental Absolutely. happiness. Absolutely. And that's what we should be measuring in a way. I, I know Bhutan, they, as a country, they, they have happiness rather than GDP as a measurement, which I think is really interesting. But happiness is the important thing. That's what we all want. And we have to then think about, okay, what is it that makes us happy? And I think being having lots of money, for example, is just an illusion. So let's take a step back. I agree with you that it's an illusion, yet it's one that people ardently follow. What do you wish was a step that everyone who aspired to be a leader took before accepting a certain level of responsibility in an organization? I would really like to think about how do we measure people before they become leaders? And I think the first thing that people should learn is to be emotionally self-aware. I think if you don't have a certain level of emotional intelligence, then you can't go to these sort of higher levels of looking at purpose and values and so on and so forth. What's the key crux of being emotionally self-aware? Is it aware of how you'll feel making certain decisions or taking actions? Or do you go the step beyond and say you've not only be able to, got to figure out how you're going to feel or anticipate, but also be able to take into account into your decision-making process how it's going to affect others 
Yeah, it's both. I think you have to start off. Again, it's a stepwise thing. The first step in emotional intelligence is being aware of yourself, of your own feelings. And then the next step is about how do you manage yourself? How do you manage those feelings? And how do you manage the way you want to be? How do you manage your initiative? How do you manage your emotional self-control, etc.? And then the third is when you start to think about other people. And although it's counterintuitive in a way that you would think, oh, we need to think about other people before we think of ourselves, the, the reality is that if you haven't got yourself under control some, in, in some way and you know yourself, then it's not possible to really help other people or to know other people. So the third area is social awareness, which is about understanding other people, of which empathy is a huge part. And then the final part of emotional intelligence is building relationships. And that's what, at the end of the day, enables us to run our organizations. So it's the self, being aware of yourself. Oh, and let me just add something that I'm sure you were thinking, but I didn't hear. It's not just being able to control your emotions, but also to be aware of what satisfies your emotions and leads you to those desirable emotional states that constitutes that full picture of emotional intelligence and self-awareness, isn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Absolutely. And then the four levels you described are yourself, being aware of others, being aware of your impact on society, and then your impact in relationships. Yeah. So it's not just the people who are out there, but the people who you care about, people who you've connected with, people who you've shared and been vulnerable to. That all makes a difference. Absolutely. So now let's take the position of being part of a screening committee that's evaluating people to be a next CEO of a company. What are some of the steps, criteria, or issues that we should include as part of our evaluation to take this into account? Let's give people who are listening who are going to be in this position, maybe these are leaders of companies who are looking for their successors. What should they be thinking about or asking them to do and see how they respond in order to see if they have have the opportunity or the capacity to be effective people who lead beyond the ego? I think the kind of questioning that will help us find the answers to this is to find examples of how people have been and how people have actually behaved in certain situations. Give me and an example of, of that kind of question. Give me an example of when you had somebody reporting to you who was having a difficult personal situation and it was affecting their work. How did you respond and how did you communicate with this person, for example? So it's a very open question. It's not a leading question, but you will then get from that response, did this person show any empathy? Did this person just was only interested in the person, what the person would do at work, what they would produce, wasn't interested in the personal, the background situation? You can find out what kind of person that is. And if you ask a really open question like that, then you know the, the individual being interviewed can't guess what you're expecting as an answer. They're more likely to give what they really think. It, it'll make them feel that they are answering the questions in the way that they think is right. That's the point. And then you're more likely to get a truthful answer. Understood. And that's a terrific example where you actually ask them how they responded in a particular situation. Because you can't well, ask, tell me about your values because that's a no, stock no. answer. In your <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Are you someone who listens with empathy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you can say something like if you want to test somebody for their courage, you can ask them to talk about an example where they had a very difficult decision to make in their business and how did they go about it? So that's a very open one, which you can then follow up with other questions. So speaking of questions, John, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning oh, round? Yeah, I hope I can give some quick, short answers. John, earlier I asked you about a person who influenced you or inspired you growing up. You talked about Mr. Green, yeah. your woodworking team 
teacher who was on the sailing club. When you were a teenager, John, what's a song you loved? Hey Jude by the Beatles. Hey Jude. And that's about as far as I can go. Your mission is to help people become transpersonal leaders and lead beyond their egos so that they're looking at these other levels. What's been the most effective way that you've gotten the word out to others? What do you do each week in order to get the mission out? I, I do a lot of work on LinkedIn and through various podcasts as well. Do you have a tool or a system that helps you stay on track? I have two to-do lists. One is the list of things that I need to be working on over a longer period of time. And the other list is things I need to get done today or tomorrow. What would you say is the best business advice you've ever received? I think the best business advice I ever received was when I was told by my Swedish boss when I was working in Sweden that he referred to me as an artistic engineer. I realized that was a good sign that I should not think of a career in engineering long term. What would you say is the best £100 purchase or so that you've made in the last six months? I think a couple of books, one on the unconscious at work. Do you remember the author? Yes, Anton Opholzer. And what's your definition of personal success? I think it's a mixture of fulfillment and happiness. What specifically brings you fulfillment and happiness? These days, it's specifically helping people to become better leaders. That's become very focused as my purpose in life. What would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? Working too long hours. So when I switch off, at say six o'clock or something like that. And I leave my mobile phone in my office. John, many people who think that they are leading beyond the ego and they think that it's just a matter of taking others into consideration don't realize how much they're missing because it isn't just realizing it and having an insight. It really is a journey. What is some advice or solid information you'd like to share with people who think that they are currently leading beyond the ego but actually need to realize that it's more of a journey than an event? I always like to use uh, Tolstoy's quote that everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to change themselves. I think that's always a great reminder that if you're not working on changing yourself on an ongoing basis, on the one hand, you're happy with who you are, but at the same time, realize that you need to continue to improve, then there's no way that you can be leading beyond the ego. John, you have been so generous in sharing with me today my quest for the best. You've talked about Mr. Green, who inspired you in order to build things and go on beyond your own comfort zone and actually sail in the creation that you built. And that led to self-confidence. You had that experience with your Swedish boss who complimented you as an artistic engineer and gave you the insight that maybe it was something that you want to look more broadly beyond and led to your transition to sales. It led you to executive leadership development and being able to realize how much more powerful it is to listen and ask insightful questions than it is to tell people what to do if you're interested in developing them. We talked about effective leadership in being able to think beyond yourself and what your staff, your employees, what suppliers, community, and beyond, and how their interests need to be taken into account. We talked about an example of a transpersonal leader, Gregor, who was the CEO of a major European bank and had the ambition to really change the culture so that people who showed up for work felt fulfilled and enjoyed their work and were more productive. Through that, they were able to get credit for their contributions and he backed them up and took the responsibility where things didn't go right. For these and so many more reasons, I want to thank you for joining me on My Quest for the Best, John. You're very welcome. John, before we say goodbye for now, tell me, where is it that we can find out more about you and your work online? The best place to go is to our website, 
www.leadershapeglobal.com. John Knight, author of Leading Beyond the Ego, I want to thank you once more for being on my quest for the best today. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.